Um, yeah, so <clears throat> this is uh, this is Britain Rupert. We're doing um, going to do a movie, a movie sort of channel. And if if you're sort of familiar with us from the state of plays on the Kingdom of Carts channel, they're going to be moving across to a new channel, which is going to be called The Men Who Talk, which is an amazing, an amazing and an abrupt title. I, I was thinking, what well, I was thinking, oh, The Men Who Talk, I like that. But then I thought, should it be The Men That Talk? Um, <laughs> uh, I don't think in terms of like just basic like understanding of what the sentence means i don't think it matters so it, it tickles me because um it's I, I imagine the sentence being told in like a horror film like um like a father bursting into the child's room and say and the kid's screaming what is it and then the kid says the men who talk <laughs> and they say all oh, right but then i was thinking would it be more frightening if she says the men that talk but then who talk sounds a bit more awkward so it makes it better yeah, men who talk. Men who talk. It flows better as a sentence, but the men that talk. Those men that talk. It sounds a bit like a bit thick. Like then he went down the shop. Then he got some milk. Then he went yeah. home. That kind of thing. He spoke to the men that talk. But if it was yeah. who got some milk, who went back home? <laughs> uh, I think we should just spend this whole first episode just just talking about the title of it, really. <laughs> Is what people have been clamoring for over the last over the last few few months. So basically, so, our the gaming podcast is called State of Play, and you know we're all veterans at that. But we thought because <laughs> we end up watching so much trash movies, especially during the lockdown, we thought, well, and we talk about them quite a lot. Why not talk about them to other people and become the men that talk? Yeah, I, I think that I was sort of to give a, a brief. Uh, overview on not why we're qualified for this but where we sort of came from like without for our love of films was um i i grew up basically just watching bad action films because my parents still watch stuff like um will happily just still watch like tango and cash of an evening and stuff like that like that's their jam mm-hmm. and when i was uh, in my like, late teens i worked in a video store uh, which was a very which was just awesome and clearly the best job i've ever had because uh, it was a failing independent store so it, it was like really quiet and i just watched films all day oh, so struggling those nurses think they got it hard <laughs> i know but uh, it was amazing and and it's just it that was when i really watched because of course you used to get they were called the time codes in and it was all like the um the copies of films that smaller production companies would and would send to video stores to see if they want to stock the film oh really so like you, screeners oh, yeah right. like screen okay. time codes yeah, screeners and so it would have like you know the numbers at the bottom and stuff and it would roll across that it was a screener and we would just just keep, and basically keep them because they would never ask for them to be sent back so the staff used to just share them out amongst themselves i used to have like, about four or five hundred at one point yeah um, all crap, obviously. <laughs> all, of, <laughs> yeah. all of them starring Jimmy Nail or or, <laughs> or Robin Shue. So um, yeah. Um, so I, I come to it from a slightly different place, I suppose, because I did a a film degree uh, at university, and I didn't I did really a film use it. Tractor, actually. I What's that? I did a film protractor. Wow. Um, yeah. So. Uh, yeah, and then I didn't really use it until I started like reviewing films for various websites. I, I start with Rock and Reel reviews, and then went on to Nerdly and Critical Critics, American site. Um, and to be honest, that was where my real interest in like '80s trash horror came from, because I just I just got sent all of their like Arrow stock, so I had to do uh-huh. like reviews of all these um, 
real like c-list movies and it was brilliant and they're amazing um but yeah so up to that point i was more into like kubrick and hitchcock and stuff it's a weird one isn't it because there's i think it's you get a different sense of satisfaction watching films that you know are trash but there's just a real there's like a real primitive joy that comes out of them when you watch them you just when when there's like a really bad edit or like constant dutch angles or just like just really badly delivered dialogue i i think good Good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but there's also like there are some real hidden gems out there as well. I'm sure we'll talk about that in a later episode. But um, yeah, and I do think I, I genuinely believe that like horror is the purest of all genres in terms of film because it touches on so many. This reason why so many young filmmakers start out with horror is because it uses uh, so many of the kind of techniques that come into other um genres uh and it touches on everything in terms of like just the technical aspects like uh cinematography the use of editing the use of makeup these sorts of things but then on top of that you've got to write uh a script which is um efficient and you know uh, is all about showing not telling that sort of thing so it's good training i think and that's why you get so many of these young filmmakers making horror movies, which is why this it's such an overstuffed genre. I, I so I do think well, it's very pure filmmaking. It's also, I think, when you watch a when you watch a horror film that's okay, yes. because so much horror is bad. Like a horror film that's decent is almost like a higher accolade and recommendation than if you said you watched a comedy that was okay. Yeah. Because because with a comedy that's okay, it just means that like you didn't turn it off, but you didn't laugh. Right. Yeah. So, whereas, like, if horror films okay, it's like there are some moments in it that 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 stood out, or you think, oh, that was yes. quite cool, and I, and, and, those, can genu- and, and yeah. potentially could stay with you in a way that wouldn't happen with other films. In a way, like you could have like a pretty lame horror film, but then have one awesome tension scene or one awesome jump scare or or something like that, and it could really stick with you in a way. Mm. It could re- reverberate. Whereas if you watch like a just a bad drama movie or something like that, then it's like, well, nothing's going to really stay with you, is it? You're yeah. just going to think, I just, I'm not convinced by this at all. Yeah, absolutely. There are so many films that um, I remember watching, I, and this is, it's so, it's so something I wouldn't watch, but I remember coming home from work when I used to house share with our mutual friend Alex, and he put on The, the Duchess, and I sat there, and is it The Duchess with, um, uh, what's her name, uh, Kira Knightley? And yeah. I sat there and watched it, and I watched it for like I think it was on for like five or six hours, and and I just thought I'm I'm not feeling nothing. <laughs> why? 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 I don't know. I think it's because I don't watch those films, and I thought it just happened. To, I came in from work, I sat down, had a coffee, and I thought, oh, do you know what? I'll watch. I'll just watch it. And yeah, yeah dra- a lot of dramas that um, really straight dramas, especially period dramas, are something that they just kind of like mafia films or war films. They don't. They don't tick my boxes. I I never get involved at any any level. Yes, yeah, I, I know what you mean. But I, I I'd say there are good examples of all different types of genres. I wouldn't say there's any particular genre I'd not I'd not indulge. But yeah, oh, I would I would literally power marathon through like Matthew McConaughey's romantic comedy back catalogue without a second thought. But um, <laughs> yeah, there, there are. Yeah, we, there are... wouldn't we all? <laughs> Haven't we all? <laughs> 
So, yeah, so I suppose we're going to do this in very much the way of the state of play where we'll just, you know, there are going to be films we've both seen and ones we haven't seen. In fact, the list I've made today, I don't know how many of them, and, and the same few, I don't know mm. if we, how many of them we've both seen. Yeah, that should be interesting. So it'd be very much like state of play, really. Yeah. Yeah. So do you want to, do you want to kick off? Uh, yeah, I was going to just, it's, it's one we've, I know that we've both seen this one. So, uh, but uh, my wife had not seen it. Okay. Uh, is Upgrade. Yes. Uh, directed by Lee Wannell. The guy who, he, I knew he had some connection with James Wan. I didn't really, he, he wrote Saw, the first. It was... Yeah, he wrote the first three Saw films and the Insidious films. And his directorial debut was the third Insidious film, which I haven't seen. But uh, I'm interested in seeing it now because he is a real talent because he made he made Upgrade and then he wanted to do The Invisible Man, which is very good as well. Did uh, he, the Insidious films, are they the ones with our man Patrick Wilson in? Yeah. Yeah. Course. Patrick, I fancy him Wilson. <laughs> yeah. And also... Speaking of men I fancy, Upgrade <laughs> stars Logan, Logan Marshall Green and he looks like Tom Hardy. So basically in the space of like that 90 minutes watching that film like that's the two men who my wife fancies more than me basically logan marshall green and tom hardy because they're basically the same person yeah i really i saw logan marshall green for the first time in a film called the invitation in 2015 yeah uh, and that was you must have seen that yeah that's yeah, creepy that, that was a really good film and that's just one where he's just he, he's just it's just is his line of sight all the time like the way the way he's there and it's only seems to be him that thinks is this a bit off and he's yeah. just constantly like just like look, look looking at people as they speak and like and then looking at other people to see if they're thinking the same thing as him like should we go so once I, you I, get yeah once you get over the fact that he would have just left so early in that place. <laughs> Once you get over that, it's it's hilarious. Like the the tension, it's brilliant. Um, yeah, but with upgrade, I just love it. It's like a kind of um, it's like an action movie with kind of uh, with a kind of AI twist in it. But what I like it how it's very ultra modern in in terms of its kind of technology concerns with regard to like AI and um, free will and stuff. But also. Yeah, also it's kind of a, an 80s throwback in terms of its style and its tone and, and its just efficiency of storytelling. So I like that a lot. Yeah, yeah. There, it, it feels like um, a, a film with like a lot of really, like really top notch uh, sort of set pieces in, but they're very understated. Yes, it's it's not like the, it's not like you know they go into a, an area and you think oh here we go there's going to be a big fight. They're very kind of underplayed and they have much more yeah. of an impact because of that. And there was. Obviously, there are scenes where, like, kind of the AI is taking over and making him fight in a very, very, like, efficient and brutal way. But what I liked is they could, what they could have done is turned it into, like, almost like he turns into a superhero and it being all flashy and stuff. But what I like is that, that it's shot in a very brutal, quick, swift way. Um, like the way a kind of a computer thinks, rather than it being like, oh, look how awesome this is. It's like, this is awesome, but in a very kind of scary and uh, sort of brutally efficient way. It reminded me a little bit of the, the, some of the fight sequences, and it reminded me in a good way of the very first Taken film, where Liam Neeson was literally just dropping people as quickly as he could to, to move on to his goal, right. where it's just that couple of movements, slam the head into a sink, and then they're out, and then he just moves on. It's not about like clumsy, oh, obviously there are some clumsy moments in it, but 
I, it reminded me of that, that kind of like yes. efficient drop them, move on sort of thing. How quickly can this fight Which is what you'd do if you wanted to like take yeah. someone down. We'll talk about the other side of that, the other end of that, when we talk about Jack Reacher in a bit. But yeah, okay. Should we crack on with your first mention? Well, obviously, I, I like that, you know, this, this when we look back in years and at how this sort of um, channel and podcast started, I'm really proud that I'm going to say that the first film I mentioned was Final Destination 5. Because that film I watched the other day, and it was one of those things. It just it was on like Netflix or something, and I was just probably hungover. And I thought, right, I'll just let's just watch it. It, it seems I I just want something I can kind of just ghost my way through, if you know what I mean. This is the this was must have been the one before they just reset it to Final Destination. I don't know anything about that. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sure they did. They just called one of them Final Destination. It must this have been after like, that. This was uh so th- this one was the fifth film is actually pretty good for just a film to just sort of sit through if you're in the mood for just because it's very much apparently the third and fourth films are really bad but right. the fifth one is is completely on board with how it is perceived by the audience so you there's a lot of like um obviously everyone knows that the final destination you know that they, they, they cheat death and then they they basically are getting caught up by death to be killed again so of course there's lots of sequences where someone will like go into a dentist or something and then it'll cut to like a like a i know like a wobbly event above them with a fan rotating (laughs) and then and then it'll cut to like a dodgy like electrical cable on the floor in a puddle and they take their shoes off and socks for no reason you're like hang on but it's like it's basically like the first 20 minutes of an episode of casualty but just spread out (laughs) like two hours isn't it It is. so it, it it was fine and there's like some little twists on it and stuff but and it's because it doesn't take itself seriously it's like a decent watch the cg in it isn't isn't particularly uh it's above event horizon levels but it's right. um, there's isn't it with the, especially with the, the gore and the blood where it's clearly they've just said i'll just cg that in and it's really weightless yeah. so uh, well, but, uh, uh, it doesn't really need CG, does it? I don't know. No. Uh, but the, the, like the, the, the sort of event that kicks off the film of a bridge collapse and like has some pretty nice moments in it. But then, of course, like when it's zoomed out and you're like, oh, that's kind of cool. That's quite epic in scale. And then when it gets a bit closer to the action, you think, yeah, that's just really weightless. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, uh, it's got like a lot of red herrings in it of how the deaths are, and like, some nice foreshadowing and stuff. And it ties itself up with the first film at the end. So it's like, right. right, that that cycle is done. I would never watch it again. But if someone said, I fancy chucking something on, I would recommend it for that purpose, you know? Right. It, yeah, they're very formulaic. I, I don't see how you can mess it up, really, when it comes to Final Destiny. Because really, all you need, you know, when you're writing a film like that, you truly just sit down, think of a bunch of, like, scenarios, really, don't you? And then just, like, tie them all together into some much, kind of... Much like Saw, I hope Lee Wannell is listening. It, yeah. uh, it, it tickles me because um, the, the scenes in it, of course, because because death is just, like, not present in the film as an entity, yeah. the, the, it, it's, it tickled me in the film how they would get together and, like, try to understand what was happening and try to, like, outthink death and, and do these outlandish things to kind of to skip their turn. But it's based on absolutely nothing. Like they've got no, they they just assume these things are happening, and then they think, well, obviously, you know, we can just outguess it. And you think, mm, yeah. I don't think that's going to work, guys. <laughs> it so, seems uh, pretty supernatural. It seems pretty. It's making a real concerted effort. <laughs> uh, so, so but yeah, it was good. It was it was a good watch. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, well, f- for my next uh, mention, something I've watched very recently is um, the most nonsensical mainstream film I think I've ever seen. 
which is uh, called Face Off from 1997. Oh, yes. yes, yes. This one John Woo, part of his, it must have been one of his last. No, I suppose he went on to do Mission Impossible 2. I don't know what else he did in America. You know what but... his favorite cocktail is? Mm, Woo Woo? Yeah, they call him John Woo Hoo. Yeah. Don't Google it. Don't Google it. No. Um, no. Um, so, yeah, face. So, this is the one with John Travolta and uh, Nicolas Cage. And Thomas what? Jane. And Thomas, Thomas Jane is in it briefly. Um, so, yeah, so uh, which one does it start with? So, John Travolta is the nice guy. Nicolas Cage is like the hardened criminal. And it, it like John Travolta has been basically hunting him down his whole career. Um, and he killed his son ages ago and so it's like a big revenge thing um so it starts off with a ridiculous action scene um where basically they do end up capturing um nicholas cage's character and anyway like basically they need to take down his criminal empire and that so they instantly decide that what they're going to do is swap faces now they don't think they don't really explore other avenues. They just think, right, I would let's just swap faces because they've got this new technology which allows them to, one to put the face on the other. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> so of course, John Travolta becomes... Sorry. Yeah. So John Travolta is now wearing Nicolas Cage's face. Haven't uh, they got really ridiculous names as well? Like, isn't he called, like, Cash Handbag or something? <laughs> um... I can't remember. It's some. It Castor Troy, I think, is Castor Troy. That yeah. was it. And I can't remember the other one. Arch or so. But it's Castor Troy, and his brother is Pollux Troy, of course. Yes. Um. So yeah. Anyway. Um. But yeah. So already, it doesn't really make an awful lot of sense. Anyway. Um. But apparently, Dave was telling me this. My friend Dave, our friend Dave. That apparently it was written by as a, a kind of futuristic sci-fi film, right? Which it's would explain sort of which is at the start. It kind would explain why it is that um, you've got this technology in the first place. It also explain why it is that uh, Nicholas Cage ends up in a, a this secret prison with magnetic boots, yeah. um, and and of course the. When he gets out, the way he gets out of the prison, like by starting a riot, and we see, and basically Nicholas Cage, so he, he's like really desperate, like people dying all over the place. He emerges on top of this um, prison, and he realizes he's in an on an oil rig in the middle of the ocean. So it kind of the the camera uh, like pulls back, and it shows that you know he's in the middle of the ocean. It's an impossible predicament. He's like totally screwed, and he's like shouting into the sky. Um, and then the next scene, he's just on the mainland, wet. Like he's just swam home. I don't like. I don't. He must have just started swimming and if thought. If Sean oh, Connery like, can do it in The Rock, yeah. then Nicolas Cage can do it in Face Off. It's amazing. But um, I, I need to mention the ending as well. But it's a massive spoiler. Uh, it's fine, Rob. But that film's from what? 1997. 1997. I think anything over 20 years has got to be. <laughs> that, that, but, can, that can be the cutoff. But just to really, really hammer home how nonsensical it is and how like how many times I just looked at the screen and thought, what? Like, cause at the end, uh, obviously everything turns out. Okay. And John Travolta returns to his family with his face back on <laughs> his face in a bag. Yeah. So then, right. So bear in mind that 
um, the guy, the other guy, Nicolas Cage's character, um, has been trying to kill him his whole life, basically. Shot his son and raped his wife, right? So, of course, John Travolta rocks up at the door and says, uh, and says, hi, honey, I'm home. And then reveals that he's just adopted Nicolas Cage's son. I mean, I know that... It's just something that he wouldn't be able to do like, without her consent or signature anyway. Yeah, exactly. He wouldn't be able to do it without... He probably wouldn't be able to do it anyway because of the fact that he would just go back into the system rather than going to this cop who has a specific interest in his father. But also, you might want to have a chat with his wife about it. If I, murdered, if I murdered someone by shoving them onto the propeller of a boat, and then I turned around, picked up my phone, and said, I want to adopt this son, actually. And you know, the child services would say, hang a banger. I think it's because his wife's like, oh, how lovely. And I'm thinking, really? Because she'd be like, hang on, every time I look at that child, I'm like, aren't I going to think about the man who took my husband's face and raped me? Am is, I, is, is, is uh, two things here. I'm just getting flashbacks. Isn't, um, isn't um, his wife, is it like Dan Lane? Um, no, it's Joan Allen, isn't it? Joan Allen. And yeah, that's fine. And and his daughter is Elizabeth. Oh, it? it's um, Dominic Swain, isn't it? Dominique Swain. Oh, is it? I'm thinking of a different. Yeah. Dominic. But yeah, I, what yeah. I remember from that is that bloody um, hand thing he does on everyone's face, which oh, is yeah. really irritating. It's like if but you do that, you've so... got oh, my God, it's face. Uh, yeah, he's like strokes his hand down pe- uh, people's faces to, like as a loving gesture, and it's like, yes, well, it, it, isn't that convenient that you're just it's, about to take each other's faces off? It's character building, Rupert. It's part of his character. Another thing that Dave mentioned was that it was going to be the film was going to be uh, a vehicle for Patrick Swayze and get this, Wesley Snipes. I'm, I think I've got logistical questions there. It'd have to be called Skin Off if that was the case, wouldn't it? Well. <laughs> Well, Dave suggested it could, it could be called Race Off, which could, <laughs> which could have been pretty good. Um, yeah, skin off. Yeah, they'd have to take all their skin off and just avoid salt the entire time. Yeah. Can you imagine it? So, right, we, right, John Devol, uh, sorry, right, Patrick, it's easy. We need to get into Wesley Snipes' Criminal Empire. So, what we're going to have to do is tear all of your skin off. <laughs> I do an undercover must... thing. I don't know. Can we backpedal? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Um, but but I, the I, thing I... is, that's. Yeah, go on. I was just saying that's a film I've probably seen like in my life, especially in my in my teens and twenties, easily like twenty or thirty times. And it and watching it, I would say I watched it the last five or six years ago. And I just the scene that stood up for me is, and and I think it's indicative of a lot of stuff from that era. Is just the tonal unevenness of of like what was socially acceptable, like the bit where he's at the start where he's just like squeezing an underage girl's bum as she's singing in like a, a choir, and he's like making this orgasmic face, and it's like, mm. it, how much does that add to the character though? Yeah, I mean, they I, they talk about um, like it, you know what it reminded me of is it was a Michael Bay movie. It really did. The the way that John Woo like shoots his action scenes and the the amount of slow motion and the way um he screws the frame so to speak um it is it really makes it look like a michael bay movie like in at his most like crass and tasteless but it also i couldn't that came from the same person who did hard boiled yeah well that's the thing it's it's so over the top it and it but weird as well and it like it's such a creepy idea anyway especially all the stuff where like he's obviously in the in his house pretending to be john travolta 
um it's it's really creepy but i can't help imagining that there could have been another version of this movie right um directed by paul verhoeven with arnold schwarzenegger and uh, sylvester stallone in the main roles it would have been amazing it could have been made in like 1988 would have been incredible it would have it been could... even better if Nicolas Cage had done an impression in the film of John Travolta circa 1989 to 1993. So he's just sat in his living room with no work, looking at his letterbox, waiting for a script to come through. Yeah. Waiting for Tarantino to knock on his door. <laughs> waiting waiting for Quentin. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a slow-burning drama, doesn't it? <laughs> <sighs> Sorry, what were you going to say before I? Uh, um, no, I, I, I think it would have been really cool. I, I'd love to see like a Verhoeven because Verhoeven, of course, would have said it in the future. It would have been really cool, and and no more ridiculous than John Woo's version because. I, I but it would what... have it would have had like a subtext and just something to say. As it, yeah, opposed, yeah, as opposed to just being completely bonkers and off the wall, which I suppose <laughs> is good in its own way. So yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's not a would... boring film. No, it's not a by any means, but and you could probably watch it again and again and get something out of it every time. Nothing good, but you get something out of it. So yeah, that's face off. Well, my next film is going to really change gears now and bring it up to sort of like triple A grade uh, movie making. So I watched 2002's High Crimes with Ashley Judd and Morgan Freeman, and it was it was one of the films I ha- I had to watch it because I consider myself like a connoisseur of thrillers and action films from like the eighties up to around 2000. And when I thought Morgan Freeman and Ashley Judd in a film that isn't kiss the girls. So I I had to watch it and it's like a a procedural courtroom sort of thriller, but with like a militaristic bent on it because the whole kind of plot is her husband isn't who he says he is. It's Jim Caviezel. Um, But a, a man who I know from a film, but I can't place what film I first saw him in. So it <laughs> definitely wasn't that. And it definitely wasn't Ginger Dead Man 2, Passion of the Crust, I'll tell you that. <sighs> so, and it probably wasn't um, The Thin Red Line either, because that's a war movie, so you probably haven't seen that. Although Nick Nolte's in that, so that is one I need to tick off my list. Everyone, every actor who's ever lived is in that film. <laughs> Cranky Moses. Um, so yeah, I, High Crimes comes on, and the whole point is Jim Caviezel... Sorry, I'm going to cough. One sec. Jim Caviezel, um, there's a break-in at the house at the start. They're kind of happily married. And they they take the fingerprints because um, there's been a break-in. It's just some kids. They jump out the window. They break through the window with, like, a, a small coffee table, right, when Jim Caviezel sees them. And mm. it's clearly they've got this huge house, this kind of, like, real totally glass-fronted house overlooking the ocean because she's, like, obviously, like, a really high-class lawyer. And they see him, and they throw a light balsawood coffee table at the window, and it's clearly single-glazed. You just think, well, if that was double glazing, it would have bounced off, and Jim, Jim Caviezel would have just beat them up. Boom, film done. So they, the point is, they take Jim Caviezel's fingerprints, they look around at the windows and say, is that single glazing? And then, and then he's like, yeah, I can hear everything. And then they turn, they, when they run his fingerprints, they realize he's not who he says he is, and he's actually someone who's wanted for war crimes from like a decade ago, because mm-hmm. they reckon he massacred a village of innocent people and lost his mind. So... Okay. Th- so she obviously takes his side. He's like, oh, I'm being framed. And then it goes into like a military courtroom where she's just completely out of her depth. And obviously she needs Lieutenant Adam Scott to help her sort of get through it all. 
Um, and there's a lot of things going on. You get Amanda Peet turns up, who is a she's pretty. She is a spoiler yeah. alert. But <clears throat> it's a and Morgan Freeman turns up as like a recovering alcoholic, who's like a sort of you know a maverick retired um, sort of military uh, lawyer. Mm. And all the pieces are there for a classic generic thriller, but mm. it it's it's really odd. Like the whole film, it does that thing where people act mysteriously for no reason. So uh. she she's talking to someone, and they're like really sort of really um sort of closed off and hiding and suspicious. And then there's loads of men just like watching her from outside, and and then there's nothing to do with anything. And you think, well, why why are we focusing on this then? All these red herrings, these constant red herrings, and then it gets to the end of the film and there's i'm not going to ruin it because it's not 20 years old yet but there's a <clears throat> there's like a, a twist and you think what and it's really unsatisfying and it's one of those films where you can't um you can't solve it yourself it's all kind of like just revealed in the last couple of minutes and you think well like okay i couldn't really guess that and if that is mm. if that is what happened why why is this parade of people that i've been introduced to either not like not involved at all or acting so suspiciously right yeah so it's, it's very it's, forced it's a very it's contrived sort of um yeah so uh, there's a whole sequence in it as well like where um one person on a legal team does something and he is seen he is seen and recorded doing this thing and then something else happens later on that kind of basically doubles down on what he did and they just yeah. sort of forgive him and mm-hmm. i thought but you he's like i told you i didn't do it and they're like yeah but we saw you I saw you do it. <laughs> so, so don't say you didn't. Uh, yeah, it was just it wasn't it wasn't very satisfying. Um, but again, <laughs> worth the <a> watch. <laughs> <laughs> Would you say uh, it's, so? It it sounds like it almost cheats a bit. I, I don't like those sorts of twisty thrillers where they they cheat the audience and there's no way of knowing. There's no way of kind of uh like like I, I, if a film like that needs to uh, is going to um succeed it needs to kind of be smarter than the audience if you see what i mean yes. like cleverer so that when you get to that point where it's like ah, i get what's happening it's like oh well that's that's clever you know i've been done here but what's really unsatisfying is when you get to that point and it's just cheated you and it's like, well, I had no way of knowing. It's when it, it's when it, no way of working what it out. should do if it was a well-written film when it would drip feed you information and then it would, and you'd think, oh, I see. Right. Yeah. But to just kind of like give you a lot of stuff. And and it also does that thing where there's one person in the film, I, I'm not sure the actor's name actually, but he's really sort of combative towards everything. And then the moment that like the, the reveal happens, his and other characters totally change like they've read the script and thought all right i don't have to be suspicious anymore so now i can just be a normal person because i don't have to keep the tension up right do you you see what i mean yeah 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 so it it, it really so it's almost like this hair as well changes color and length (laughs) she is wearing a syrup in some scenes you're like what is happening with your hair woman (laughs) what was she else was she doing at the time was she was she shaving her head like Kim Cattrall in Split Second. Which, well, we'll have to talk about next now you've said that. <laughs> that film. Oh, my God. Um, uh, do, you, do you want to move on or do you want to do something else first? Well, I mean, now we've mentioned Split Second, I suppose we yeah. should. I, I guess, we, we, you know, we don't have to spend too long on it because, I mean, it's a preposterous film. <laughs> it, was, it was a film I saw when I had food poisoning a few months ago. And I, I was like, do you know when you're sort of so so feverish that you just kind of 
I couldn't concentrate, so I just put on a load of films that I didn't have to focus on. But when I got to um, when I got a split second with Rutger Hauer, uh, Kim Cattrall, Alistair Duncan, Pete Postlethwaite, Alan Armstrong, Alan Armstrong, this like this amazing cast, uh, and it was so uneven. I, I had to take even through my fever. I thought this is amazing. I have to watch this again with Rupert because and, it's it's basically uh, so it's. When was it made? Like late nineties, mid late nineties. Oh, it's early nineties, was it? Yeah. yeah so it, British made um, sci-fi thriller set in two thousand and eight, the far future, <clears throat> where London is supposedly flooded, but it's just a bit damp. There's not really anything. <laughs> or like it has literally overhead shots of the city, and it looks fine. Yeah, uh, and then when they will go into the streets, they're wearing wellies, and so. Rutger Hauer plays like the worst cop in the world, worst detective in the world, going around like, like not and shouting at people, getting really angry, like losing control all the time, um, not able to catch the person who done it, it, it did it, even though they're right there. And, and it's and talking to dogs, like, like he couldn't. He was like question at the start of the film. He's questioning. He tries questioning people in the club. But then he just ends up focusing on this dog. He keeps saying, you saw something, didn't you? And it's like, well, why are you... Why it are you doesn't really matter if he sees whether, Yeah, whether it sees something or not, you, it wouldn't be enforceable in a court of law anyway. So what are you doing? And he's awful. And the, the captain... Who plays the captain? It's not Pete Possethway. It's someone else, isn't it? It's, yes, Alan Armstrong. Is Alan Armstrong? Yeah, it is as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Alan. So yeah, Alan Armstrong plays this like police chief, and he's constantly having a go at him, saying, "What are you doing? You're out of control. You uh, discharged a firearm uh, at a murder scene, all sorts." And it's like, why not just sack him? Because he's not—he's a massive liability. He's not catching like the killer. And in fact, yeah. the only reason why he comes into contact with the killer is because the killer's after him. Yes, yeah, as outwitted him, um, yeah. and the, that sequence as well, that amazing sequence where it it cuts back to like the, the whole reason for his, this kind of revenge uh, mindset he's got is when he's in like a sewer, like a waterlogged sewer with his with his um, with his partner, <laughs> and he's looking directly at him, and his partner just gets like pulled pulled underwater, even though he's standing on concrete, Instantly pulled straight underwater. downwards, like straight a down really pool. shocking way, and then it cuts to Rukahawa, and he's looking around like he's in like a group viewing of a house he has a mild interest in and and it's just there's no shock he doesn't search for him he just kind of looks around like oh that was a bit oh is he gone and then it just cuts to the future and he's traumatized yeah like he's staring at a bit of wall in this house thinking is that mold or is that just like discoloration or is that where the light's coming through the window and it's just a shadow yeah it's just like just mild possible perturbment but not sure but where you're talking literally as well uh, oh. Where she's just wearing a wig, and it's never, and the camera really like luxuriously hones in on the fact she's wearing a wig, and it's never her hair and everything. He keeps, he keeps, he keeps revealing hair. where she shaved her sideburns. He's like pulling the hair back as he's stroking it, because like he's thinking, is that a syrup? Um, but then, yeah, and there's no reason for Kim Cattrall to be in the film. Like she exists purely as like the sex object. That, and also, the the whole point is like she she turns to Rucker Howard because she's wants 
she kind of wants uh, closure on a on a on a husband going missing who was his partner, and he takes her in because you know for, he's like there for his partner, and then they just fall in love, so they completely just like just yeah. quack on his memory anyway, and just it's like oh this yeah is right I didn't even think of that because she goes back to his place and it is disgusting, it's really <laughs> it's properly foul. It's he is it, not going to get his bond back. Yeah, it's not like oh just a bit kind of like sparse or just a bit neglect. Um, yeah, neglect. It's not. It's actively unhygienic and unpleasant. Like it's full of rotten food. Foods. Yeah, like chocolate stuck to the fridge in a pattern and stuff. It's weird because, of course, she eats which she eats off because he's constantly eating chocolate for some reason. Yeah, but yeah. On top, so on top of that, like for some reason, she's like really attracted to him for whatever reason. Like this, this slob, this unpleasant misogynist slob who's like probably twenty years older than her or whatever, and it's like. <laughs> and of course, like the partner of her ex as well. So it's like, mm, there's many reasons why she would not be attracted to him. And, when, and if you think about it, like the fact that she, her ex, who went missing, like her ex, her, her husband, is when you do see him in the flashback, he's like a really clean cut, kind of good looking, svelte, pleasant man. So it's not like it's yeah. not like they were similar. And it's not even like um, they. It's not like they particularly share this i mean they obviously have share this grief but they dealing they're dealing with it in such different ways and so it's not even like they can meet on that level and on top of that um his partner um alistair duncan Duncan, um who is he comes along and he's he's presented as this total nerd sort of thing and i was thinking i was assuming that what would happen is that the more time these two spent together it would be like a kind of like a two-way thing uh, like him and Rutger Hauer, where Rutger Hauer, or like um, where the nerdy guy kind of learns a bit uh, about how to kind of man up from Rutger Hauer. But on the other hand, Rutger Hauer learns a bit about being a nicer person generally, you know, and just being a bit more empathic. But no, that doesn't happen at all. What happens is that the nerdy guy just becomes really unpleasant and uh, slobbish, uh, just like him. And that's it. That's and, and it's happened. kind of celebrated. Yeah, like it, like oh, now he's a real man. But he was much more pleasant and probably more effective as a policeman before he <laughs> changed his ways. Yeah, astonishing it, film. But yeah, it, it definitely. If you like these kind of ridiculous, uh, sort of early to mid nineties, like just action films, it's 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 entertaining. Oh yeah, it's t- and it's totally perfect. Bad. It's perfect, like for those like because it's like probably under 90 minutes and it's perfect for those nights where you're watching with others and just questioning everything you see which is brilliant because yeah, every shot it's like what why why is this happening <laughs> yeah. love um, it so yeah split sec was an absolute yeah, brilliant <laughs> film of the week <laughs> um i'm just moving on to my next one now i watch have you, you haven't seen this have you uh mandy with nicholas cage uh, i started watching it but i haven't finished it yet Okay. For what reason? Just time constraints? Uh, just time, really, because it's something that uh, my wife would definitely not enjoy. So it's definitely something I'll be watching on my own. Um, yeah, well, I'll tell you what, then we'll talk about that next time. Yeah, okay. I'll finish watching it because it does seem really good. Well, it seems very stylish. Well, if I'm going to have to skip over Mandy Rupert, I'm going to have to go to my next film, which is Firewall with Harrison Ford from 2006. Um, <laughs> so. Well, 
Oh, I remember. I remember when I didn't even know it was that recent. I I literally thought it was earlier than that. There's the period of Harrison Ford's life where, which I'm most familiar with, because obviously it was like when I worked in the video shop, and you you could take a snapshot of Harrison Ford in Firewall, and show it to someone, and then say, "Okay, what film is this?" And they'd say, "Well, it's either Firewall, or it's Air Force One." Or it's Patriot Games, and they would just list all those films that he was in where he effectively played the same character. Yeah, and this is very much in that sort of mold, with the difference being that obviously the main antagonist is um, Paul Bettany, and it's one of those films where he's he's like a works security for a bank, and he uh, his family get kidnapped and held ransom in his house, and he has to kind of take down the bank security and transfer all this money everywhere. Uh, tell me there's hacking. Tell me there's computer. Oh, there's yeah. so much. There's so much hacking. To, and uh, hacking to the level of saying, "Oh, what's that on over there?" And then someone looks away. Boom! He's turned off all the cameras <laughs> on on their keyboard. And, <laughs> and on a Windows-based machine, yeah. typing stuff in. Yeah. So yeah, they've got deluxe paint open. He's typing. Boom! All the doors are open. And um, yeah, just so many sequences that are there to our attention. Like a whole thing where, like. Paul Bettany, right? The whole reason is Paul Bettany has got a gang of like these operatives who have got his wife and child at home, and Harrison Ford's got a camera and a microphone on him. And if if he does anything, he will just kill his family. And yet, Paul Bettany just decides to like add another layer to things by like going into the bank with him, making him show show him around the bank. So then they have to kind of in the final sequence go around turning off all the cameras and deleting all the hard drives. When if Paul Bettany had just said, well, you know, there's you've got enough things to worry about. So I, I'll just stay here because you're going to do what I say anyway. Mm. And there's so many sequences where like Paul Bettany would have just, when they try to escape where Paul Bettany would have just, if he was serious as he is at the end where he suddenly loses his temper and is just out to kill them. If he had just shot his wife or like yeah. chopped a finger off one of his children, Harrison Ford would have literally done everything with that second question. But yeah. because he kind of is like trying to be matey again, to keep that, that sort of forced tension up. Yeah. then it, it doesn't it doesn't wash but uh it was again it's a perfectly workable thriller but it's just harrison ford being mid-2000s harrison ford yes it was always it i don't know what it was that kind of because now we'll know that he's kind of looks like someone who's lost interest in acting there's like nothing but in his eyes at all uh and i i don't know whether it's because he did all those kind of very middling films in the 2000s or whether he'd already lost interest and then did those films if you see what i mean what i don't know it's chicken and egg scenario but either way it was it's been a, a slightly depressing decline because he did have something um back in his younger years i mean you look at like some of his early films like i always talk about when it comes to harrison ford the Mosquito Coast. Actually, just the films he did with Peter Weir in the in the eighties, like Mosquito Coast and um, Witness, the one about yeah, the one about the Amish people. Where he's just building houses, but yeah, he's he and he's so good, especially in Mosquito Coast. He's nuts in that film, and it's brilliant. And it's like because it's all about him taking his family, like basically he's he's despairing at uh, like modern American society, so he decides to take his family into the jungle and like start a new life there uh, sort of thing and he's 
and like he's really desperate for this to work and like live off the land and stuff and he just becomes like really really uh militant about it and he just goes bonkers basically in the in the jungle and it's an amazing performance um but i really haven't seen anything like that you know in his apart from six days seven nights without hash naturally (laughs) yeah there's um (laughs) which is again him going bonkers in the jungle yeah, uh, or rather losing his temper in a jungle, I suppose, is a different, yeah. different. But yeah, there is a lot of them. There's just a lot of these films where another one I'll, I'll talk about in a minute. Where I don't know, there's people of like actors of great stature and and real capability do these films, and you think they're just there's nothing to them. Mm. And it, I get, I have no problem with them doing like you know slumming it in these <clears> sorts of films, but you want them to if they're going to be in stuff like that, elevate it in some way, you know, mm. like be like the best actor in the room or whatever and sort of be in a position where it's like, oh, well, this is kind of trashy material, but they've, they've managed to push it to another level. But it's too often, especially with like Harrison Ford or something, it's like, well, you know, it's just, just a name really, isn't it? He could it be, could be, it could be any actor doing it. It could be Jim Caviezel. <laughs> I was just about to say, it could be Jim Caviezel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's depressing. But um, yeah, it's a, 2006 i suppose the it is is there some good like retro tech in there or is it too new i mean you're gonna have crt monitors and stuff i suppose oh there was some serious crt going on it tickled me because of course he's got this this house that's um like ultra modern and all this security and stuff yeah. and then at the start his um his daughter's just watching like a 14 inch crt <laughs> on a like of some like really bad rock group like while she's eating cereal oh amazing yeah so um, yes, they really struggled making hacking interesting, haven't they, in these thrillers? I'm... Oh, I will say that on this subject, <clears throat> tying in our two channels together, Ben Yahtzee Croshaw has yeah. written a game about hacking where the whole game is you just, it's just all this stuff happens on the screen and you just type randomly on the keyboard and it hacks stuff. And that, <laughs> sounds, that sounds really fun. <laughs> yeah, there is, um, there, I think there are websites out there where you can pretend to be a hacker. Basically, it comes up with a screen and you just type in whatever and it, and it, and it automatically comes up with loads of stuff which is like real hacking code. It's quite funny. Yeah, I do like uh, the thought of that. I, I wonder if they actually use that stuff in movies as well. The only decent hacking film I've ever, like properly decent hacking film I've seen is probably Black Hat with uh by michael mann and which isn't chris Hemsworth. yes yeah. and it, and again even but even then like the hacking part's the worst part of it <laughs> it's just a decent thrill around it and it shows that michael mann can still direct when he fancies it when he's not d- directing on an iphone or whatever he likes to do these days um right i'll move on to my next one then okay uh which is star trek 3 the search for spock which i watched the other day um I'm gradually making my way through the um, Star Trek movies again, as 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 we do. Um, now, there's this kind of uh, rule that basically the odd-numbered Star Trek films are awful, and the even-numbered Star Trek films are good. Now, I like all the Star Trek films in some ways, but there is some truth in, in that kind of pattern, unfortunately, because Star Trek Two was, of course, Wrath of Khan, and that is generally regarded as one of the best ones. It was, was the nice. fourth one, The Voyage Home? Yes. Like, Voyage I've Home. never seen as someone... That was the one... Oh, it's, it's the most of its time, because it's a really 80s one, where they go back... Um, they go back to the present. 
um, to save the whales, and it's eighty-six, of course, of course. <laughs> and it's amazing. It's so dated because, of course, it's not. It's all really drawing attention to whatever like pop culture there was at the time or whatever fashions. But on top of that, as well, there's this whole subplot about stealing uh, nuclear warheads and stuff off like a Russian submarine. It's like kids watching that these days must be thinking, "What? What's that called? What? Russian? Is it, what? Is it? Does it really focus on like the fish out of comedy humor as well?" Oh yeah, big time, oh, good, massively. Good. They're, the, got, they're the strongest comedies. It's got like Spock um, reprimanding some punks on a bus and stuff. So yeah, it's not a, it's not a, a Russian air like nuclear warheads, but <laughs> this is a ridiculous sequence where they go and steal some nuclear warheads off an American like aircraft carrier, and um, and of course they send in their one Russian character, you know, Chekhov. And it's like, oh, the humor in that sequence when the Russian comes on board. Anyway, so yeah, that was um, that was from number four. But number two was Wrath of Khan, and it's and it was basically remade as Into Darkness. It's and it had a really good like intensity to it. But this and it had a quite shocking ending in the um, uh, spoiler alert. Spock okay, it's over twenty years. Spock dies uh, in it, which is a really good sequence, a really quite nice moment where they're kind of saying goodbye through the glass sort of thing so that's good now um the problem with the search for spock is it is quite blandly directed by leonard nimoy himself and, and like wrath of khan had a really good baddie in khan but who plays khan? For, i have um, to say at this point that i've never seen any star wars or star trek film so i'm oh, totally out of my quite, depth here <laughs> that's quite impressive <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, so, um, yeah, who is the one? Oh, it was R- R- Richard Montalban, R- Ricardo Montalban, the yeah, guy who played Khan. Anyway, so, but Search for Spock has Christopher Lloyd in, like, really heavy Klingon makeup. And the problem is, is that because the makeup's so heavy, he can't really emote too hard. So when he's getting angry, he just kind of, like, has a straight face. So it's sort of like a weirdly wooden performance. From someone like Christopher Lloyd, he went so bonkers in, like... Uh, you know, uh, who framed Roger Rabbit and like Back to the Future and that. Uh, it's weirdly wooden, so that's strange. Um, and he doesn't have a clear motivation, so it's like not, again, Khan had a good motivation. He just has no real motivation. He uh, he just seems to be have it in for human beings and doesn't want them to have a nice life. And that's it, really. But okay. there's, yeah, like in... It's structurally just a bit of a messed up movie in terms of like it's kind of big emotional moments because in Wrath of Khan, uh, Kirk meets his son, his estranged son, who he's, I don't think he's ever met before. Is his name and, Dirk? Uh, I can't actually remember what his name is. Dirk Kirk. Um, yeah, so and like so they meet in that one. So, of course, in this one, you're thinking, well, you know, it makes sense if they, it developed the relationship and like they have some sort of like uh, repartee and like and that sort of thing. But no, in fact, they're completely kept separate throughout the entire film on different planets. Uh, and then and then his son's just like murdered by one of the Klingons and and then like, he, he goes and finds his body. But that's it. It's like, well, you haven't built up this relationship enough for us to care, surely, because. He's been estranged this whole time. You had a whole film to develop this relationship between Kirk and his son, and they didn't meet in the entire film. So it's ridiculous. So, yeah, it isn't the best. And you like it, you see? Well, I, I, I like the, <laughs> the whimsy of the Star Trek movies. Uh, yeah, so it's not the best, no. 
But it's um, not the worst by any means. I've only got two two more to go through, and one I've of them is. Well. Oh, nice. Okay, one of them is one I think we've both seen. If that's yep. not spoiling. So um, the last one I've got again is a thriller from two thousand and one called "Don't Say a Word" with Michael Douglas, Famke Janssen, and yes, Sean Bean. I don't think I've seen that. It's 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 worth a watch because mm-hmm. it's there's a lot going on in this film. Um, the, I was watching it and. At the start of the film, the heist that starts off the film. So yeah, so Michael Douglas is um is a psychiatrist, like a like a world known psychiatrist. Obviously, one of his best friends is Oliver Platt, which is always good. And oh, that was in every film. His <laughs> his uh, his wife Famke Janssen, who is clearly a quarter of a century younger than him, is yeah. in uh, is like bed, but she's like hurt her leg in some accident, so she's like in bed in the New York apartment for the whole film. And so the premise is that Sean Bean is with like a gang who go on this heist into a bank and they're there for a specific safety, a specific item in a safety deposit box. Now, I can't give spoilers because this film's only 19 years old. It doesn't come oh. up to that 20 year mark. So I'll have to keep my cards close to my chest, I'm afraid. And so this heist goes off. And the whole point of it is like there's a lot of like someone shouting 90 seconds, 70 seconds, and then looking at a watch and it's all like timed, you know, to the to the beat. So what they do is when they get into the vault within 30 seconds after like a really planned, like rob, carefully planned robber where no one's hurt and they get into the vault, they get into the safety deposit boxes. They crowbar out the safety deposit box and instead of just picking it up off the floor because it's the sign of like a box that would have some high-tech silver shadows in it and then jumping into the back of a van just driving off and sorting it out at their leisure later on, they just empty the contents onto the floor and like really slowly go through it looking for this one jewel instead of just making the most of the heist and just having all the money that's in there as well, all the other jewellery. So I, what happens then, of course, is one of his accomplices pockets it, switches it round, and they get double-crossed, and then he buggers off. And then, like, Sean Bean, like, wants it back. Mm. So this, so I'm, without giving any more background, it's a film that could have been avoided if they just said, should we just take this in the van and do this later on when we're not, like, when the police aren't rushing towards us? Yeah. Uh, so someone would come up with that idea. You know, in the plan, the team. <laughs> you can imagine them like in some warehouse. They've and they've got like a big blackboard up, and Sean Bean's got like a like a laser pointer saying right then. So then we go in. We got ninety seconds before the police turn up. We've got this t- time to a T. We go in there. We we get in there. We knock them down. We open the vault. We get in there. We we crowbar out the safety deposit box, and then and this is key, guys. Pay attention to this. We slowly rifle through it. We're all of us gathered round, getting in each other's way. <laughs> With gloves on, so it's really cumbersome as well. And then someone um, holds up their hand to say something, and then Sean's like, "I'm finished." So, so yeah, and then no one double crosses now. So, yeah, so the film is then, for reasons unexplained, Brittany Murphy. It's quite sad actually because Brittany Murphy and the eight-year-old girl in it who plays, yeah, the eight-year-old girl who plays fifty-six-year-old Michael Michael Douglas. Um, is they both they both died quite young from drug overdoses, which is really. really? I think the little girl died when she was like twenty or something. It's really harsh. So watching it now is kind of it's kind of sad. But Brittany Murphy plays is pretty good partner. She she's plays someone who's got these six digits locked in her head and she won't tell anyone. So Michael Douglas is there to break down offenses defenses and get this number for Sean Bean for unknown reasons. Michael Douglas in that film wears makeup. He wears makeup. Um, my girlfriend Faye is a, a like a professional makeup artist in the media industry, and I was watching it, and she was over my shoulder, like on her phone, and 
when Michael Douglas came on screen, she said, "Is he wearing bronzer?" <laughs> and then, and then every now and again, she chimed in with, "Has he got, has he got shimmer on his cheeks?" And and when she said it, I could not see it. There are scenes in that film where he is actually wearing like r- really shiny lip gloss. And you think, what is happening? They've obviously tried to make him look younger, but it just ends up making him look like a crossdresser. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like it's really bizarre. Um, and of course, there's lots of like real close-ups on him. And you think you're wearing makeup. You're wearing <laughs> wearing full makeup. Um, so yeah, he doesn't get to wear like a like a a, ch- a chain male male woolen uh, jumper with a V-neck it's in, a, in a in a busy club. Yeah, well, we would just look like someone's like stoned dad looking for his daughter because she's yeah. not supposed to be out. Um, and he's got he's got like the sleeves, doesn't he? Like pushed up, but it's oh so billowing God. and oversized they kind of like hang over themselves. Oh. Um, but yeah, again, absolutely fine film. Just you, it just you have to really just suspend your disbelief because yeah. some of the stuff. It's that always troubling like... when something happens in literally the first scene, which doesn't make sense and actually negates the rest of the film. Yeah, and also kicks off the plot. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was uh, again. I don't know. I, I don't know why I went through a phase of just watching all these dodgy thrillers. I, I, I must have just yeah. Sometimes it has to happen. So sometimes that's... it's about a certain period. I think like I I. It's not even a type a certain type of film. Sometimes I, I feel like I want to watch a film from like early two thousands or something like that. I don't know why. And then you we watch like a series of them, and it's like it's it's weird, and you suddenly notice that imperceptible change in style that you wouldn't have noticed like as you just live life and watch movies regularly. But going back to a particular place in time, it's like. Right, yeah, yeah, that wouldn't happen now. I, I remember um, talking about this, this whole change in style. I remember I watched what film that I watch with Faye. It was Argo. So we, right. we watched Argo like a few months ago, and uh, she was like, oh, I really enjoy-. usually Faye just watches like horrors. She said, oh, I really enjoyed that, it was quite cool. And I said, Oh, the thing is, in the 70s, there's a lot of like really, really cool films like, mm-hmm. um, you know, The Three Days of the Condor, starring. Um, Oh my God! What's his name? Robert Redford. Oh, Redford. In that film, there's a scene where uh, I think it's Jessica Lange is in a kitchen with him, and he's sitting at a bar, at, at, like the sort of uh, island in a kitchen, and he's wearing double denim f- flares and cowboy boots, and he's got a shirt open halfway down, and he's drinking whiskey. And I thought, I would marry you. I would <laughs> leave my life to be with you, Robert. Now, um, and so yeah, um, we watching that when I was talking about Three Days of the Condor and stuff, yeah. and and then. Um, I said, oh yeah, another one that's really good is is the the parallax view, yeah. and then she said, oh, what happens in that film? And I, my my like to suck her in and make her want to watch it with me. My like go to scene was I said, well, there's an amazing sequence <laughs> where Warren Beatty sits on the end of the bed in darkness, just smoking loads of fags. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty um, much just sums up seventies film. It is amazing. There's two. There's two sequences really quickly. Two sequences in that film, The Parallax View, that I always leap to. One of them is when he says to his, he's a journalist going undercover for this, like these weird murders that have been happening, and he says to his boss, "Look, we're gonna fake my death. Take me off the books. Tell everyone I'm dead. I'll be back in a week. Give me ten grand of like you know money so I can go and and I'll, and I'll, I'll crack this case." And it hard cuts to him sitting on his bed in darkness, smoking fags, panicking because he has no idea what to do next. <laughs> And then the the bad guys knock on his door and then come to him. And there's another sequence where someone says they're on a beach and someone, some like uh, drug lord says to him with a henchman behind him holding a gun who's about six foot eight says, oh, I'll tell you exactly what you need to do, know, but you have to 
leave all your personal belongings on the beach and come out with me on my ocean liner into the middle of the ocean. And then I'll tell you. And the look on his face suggests that he is not keen on the idea. <laughs> he's so out of his depth. And yes, it. one of the, it's, one it, that sounds, it, it reminds me of the long goodbye with Elliot Gould, where he's just like so out of his depth and all the, like, all the gangsters just in his house, like threatening him. And he's just, oh, he's just a chain smoking nobody. And it's like, he, he's got no, he's no physical threat to them whatsoever. I love that stuff. And like those desperately like pathetic Men desperately pathetic, but also somehow cool men that you it's had the in like some like of these the movies. Of the condo is yeah. with Robert, where he's just completely these things are happening, and like he's getting attacked, and he's no comprehension of why it's happening. Yeah, and he's trying to get the bottom of it. But what's good is your drip fed information, and there's not some stupid twist at the end, it reveals itself slowly, mm. yes, which is the sign of a good film. Yes, uh, so well, my next one is a 70s film as well. Uh, because I watched, uh, I just had to watch Jaws again the other day, um, which I love, but I think it's pretty well established that it's, it's quite a film. I've only weirdly watched about two or three times, like a very long time ago. So it is a very good film. Uh, it's just really, really nicely constructed from from the script up, if you see what I mean. And and I love the fact that it's well, there's lots of things I love about it, but I do love the fact that it's like a film of two halves that almost feels like two films for the price of one. The way that you've got this kind of like uh this unfolding drama um thriller thing on uh to do with the town and kind of like trying to persuade the, the town mayor that this is something to take seriously. And then it just turns into like three dudes on a boat and it's a monster movie sort of thing. Uh and it, yeah, I love it. And it's got, it's just really, really nicely detailed. Like the the relationship between Brody and his wife is like, is really. I've always found it convincing. And I think the older I get and the the more married I am, um, <laughs> you 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 can see it. It it feels like a lived in relationship. The thing is, there aren't actually that many dialogue scenes between them, but it feels really kind of lived in. So that's really cool. And and I always notice something new, like because like all good movies. I always notice something new when I watch it again, sort of thing. And this time, it was—it's this thing with the the mayor, um, who is the one who's like saying, "Oh, there's nothing wrong. We got to keep the beaches open, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. Yeah. And so he starts off like this, and he constantly, right, has an unlit cigarette in his hand throughout the and uh, throughout the first like hour or something, and and then. Gradually, he starts playing with the cigarette more and more. He never lights it. He never lights it. And then and he plays with it more and more as the tension kind of rises. And the, the moment when he lights it is the moment when he realizes the situation has got out of control and he doesn't have uh, he doesn't have control of it anymore and he needs to close the beaches. And it's like, that's the moment when he lights it. In the middle of a hospital, naturally. It is the 70s. Um, <laughs> but I just thought, like, little things like that is things that you, you probably... You, you notice if you watch it over and over again, but they are kind of just under the surface to anyone watching it at any time that you may not notice it, but it's there and it's clearly deliberate because why else would, would that, that happen? So, yeah. So it's just really, really cool. And it's just a very, very good film. And of course, because it's because they really struggled with like the kind of special effects and the the sharks and that it means that the, the actual kind of shots of the shark are very carefully chosen uh and that makes it scarier because it's like just a glimpse of the shark like a fin here and there or, or just you just see the the eye or whatever and it, it makes it scarier um 
yeah, so that's a good movie. <laughs> who, who would have thought? <laughs> who would have thought that? I think it'll go on to bigger it's and better. One of the most celebrated films of all time would be good. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, it's. It, but it, I think apart from Steven Spielberg's direction, obviously, uh, in the way he uses actors and that, it's just the script is so good, uh, and the kind of that the triad of um, Robert Shaw, Richard Dreyfuss, and Roy Scheider. Yeah, really that cool. is a good, that's a good try. Um, uh, so that's a solid six and a half out of ten, which is yeah. a good film. Um, the, I do have one that I missed actually before we talk about the, the final film because I think you've only got one left, haven't you? I have only got one left. Yeah. Um, the, uh, I, 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 this is quite telling that I kind of forgot about it. Um, the Color Out of Space, because oh, obviously yeah. riding high on Mandy, I thought I really need some more Nicolas Cage because he went through a bit of a, a lull apart from um, Joe. And I think there was one other film I watched of his. He really was it I'm knowing assuming. by any chance Alex Proyas? <laughs> that, that was that was up, and I thought I could watch that because I know that <laughs> you said it was a load of nonsense, and then Sexy Dave, our friend one night, spent about an hour explaining why it's really really worth a watch. And Dave I could... is a massive Alex Proyas apologist, though. To be fair, what else has Alex Proyas done then? I Robot. <laughs> Aye, to carry on. <laughs> um, he did the. Cr- did he use Crow? Dark City. He did... <laughs> if only he did. Um, he did Dark City as well, which is I, I just find that all his films are like almost good. He did Gods of Egypt as well. My God, Gods of Egypt. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah, so he did Dark City, which is quite well regarded. But Keith Sutherland and um, Rupert Grint. Grint. No, is it? Is that his name? Rufus Sewell, not Rupert. Rufus yeah. Sewell, yeah, I could see him. Um, so the color Richard of... O'Brien, naturally. <laughs> Natch. um, so the color of space is based on a H.P. Lovecraft book, mm. and I'm not. I'm familiar with his works overall, but I'm not familiar specifically with stories. If you know what I mean, like the the most tipsy I've been is Call of Cthulhu on the um, on the Xbox, and what? But I'm I'm familiar with the kind of his brand of cosmic horror, and what. It's all about Nicolas Cage and his family, and um, in this in this um, in this house that he's called. He's kind of moved back to the country to try and to, after his father's death to try and basically save money and to, to kind of get the farm going again and try to get back into that way of life. Yeah. And a meteorite lands in their garden, and these weird things start happening. And whilst it's a pretty, it's very colourful and it's a very pretty film. You know, mm-hmm. like what it's it's kind of well presented. And Nick Cage's performance is, is wonderfully balmy. Um, what I took away from it the most was, that, what I enjoyed the most was the fact that what's happening to them is totally incomprehensible because it it is in and of itself alien. Like the things that are happening, it's this unseen force that the, the things that happen to different family members, they, there's no correlation to how they affect each other. It's just this completely abstract concept that human minds clearly can't fully yeah. understand. And I and you do get that sense of like they're in this situation there's just no escape from because they can't even comprehend it. There's no oh le- there, there is like Tommy Chong plays like an old hermit who lives in the shack, but he's totally useless. Like they go to him, for, you know, for like one of the the son of the family goes to him for like advice, and he's just he's just like I have no idea what's happening. He's just a bit of a stone hippie, and I like the fact there's clearly no escape from this. This is not going to end well. Mm-hmm. Um, weirdly, in it, Nicolas Cage even before it all kicks off. I don't know what the direction to him was, but he just does, think it matters. He just does impressions of Donald Trump, like <laughs> just just goes into his like vocal inflections and hand movements, and 
and you so think odd. why are you doing that like and it and the way the kids react to it is like it's just like it's just him talking and you think yeah but he's like a really meek man and then w- when he suddenly gets but i rate he suddenly does impressions of donald trump that's amazing um, but the thing so- is you see like that's the the brilliance of nicholas cage is that he will be in this movie and it's like you might think to yourself, oh, I'm not sure. It doesn't really sound like my kind of thing. And then as soon as someone says, oh, he just randomly does impressions of Donald Trump. It's like, well, you have to see it then, don't you? Because it's like, that's too bizarre to possibly. I realize not, that we've got with that Mandy and face off with three Nicolas Cage films this wow. week. That's incredible. <laughs> that's really good. Um, yeah. So it's, it's good. It, I didn't, it didn't grab me as much as I'm not going to say too much about Mandy. So I want you to see it first, but um like that was right up my strasser, but with with the color of space, I just it felt a bit. It felt like it could have been a bit shorter, mm. and it there were some scenes in it that you think, oh, Craigie Moses, <laughs> like Jolie Richardson is in it, and it's always good to see her again because w- women in Hollywood they seem to just like do nothing in their fifties, don't they? It's like not many parts, so they kind of drop off the map. So it was good to see her in a film, like a mm. good film, but um, and the relationship between the siblings and stuff is is cool, uh, but it's i don't know maybe i would watch it again if i was over your house and you checked it on i would watch mm-hmm. it again but it's not one i would watch myself again whereas i would right. go straight back to mandy right yeah I, i'm keen to watch both of them i'll try and watch both of them before that'd be cool actually before we next do the next episode, uh, yeah. episode yeah and then we'll get to talk about nicholas cage again we might <laughs> just throw in the battle lieutenant while we're about it yeah that was good i enjoyed that speaking of Werner herzog uh, he's not dead no i watched jack reacher Oh, yes. We watched Jack Reacher. So, now, this movie, I, I haven't seen the sequel, and I'm not even sure I'll bother with it, but with this, it feels so much like a 70s thriller, like, in a way that I hadn't really noticed before. It, it's like the cinematography, like, with the overhead shots and stuff like that, the kind of stylized use of uh, lighting and shadows, the, and the opening sniper, sniper sequence almost felt like it was like kind of like the opening of the conversation where he's like, it's like a kind of just a shot of like a crowd and you're not really sure what's going on. So thing. And and it's got this faint kind of eerie paranoid music going on. It really, it was quite effective in that way. Mm. So, we, and this, you know, the script is sometimes quite pretty good when people are like having it's a go Rosamund at each other. Rosamund Pike in this. Rosamund Pike is in this film. Yes. yes and she right, yeah. is miscast, but, but Yeah. <laughs> The problem is, the problem with the movie is Reacher himself. Because I haven't read the books. Um, I, have, I haven't read the books, but I've read synopsis of a few of them. Right. And the character in and of itself really irritates me because who was the person who wrote the books? Lee Child. Right. It, it's, it, when you read about it and what people like about Jack Reacher, you get yeah. the impression that it's like, oh my God, he's cool. He doesn't, he doesn't listen. He yeah. walks everywhere. He doesn't listen to music. He just thinks of music in his head. He's got a jukebox in his head. And you're like, yeah. what? And it's the all pr- this stuff that's like supposed to be cool, but it's just, what? Yes. Uh, Cruise, Tom Cruise doesn't have the physical presence because as far as I know, this guy is someone who's meant to be able to walk in a room and, and intimidate people just by being there because he's so huge sort of thing. Yeah. Um, Cruise doesn't have the physical presence, but he's also too charming. He's too nice to really sell the idea of a man who kind of lives outside of normal society and just can threaten people in that way. And as we've discussed before, and we will discuss now, there's that central scene where he's in an office with Rosamund Pike and he's looking out the window at office workers. And he talks about how 
trapped they must feel in their lives. And that may well be true, fine. But he, then he follows it up with the assumption that they would trade that feeling for his lifestyle. As in, and we're talking about this is a man who lives the life of a drifter. He wanders. He's really transient, yeah, isn't he? Wanders Just... aimless and completely lonely through through the world. Wanted by various gangsters and cops. Never safe. Never stable. Un- unable to forge any kind of lasting relationships. And it just sounds like a nightmare. I don't. I'd rather have the sense of feeling a bit trapped, but also like quite safe and just be able to enjoy <laughs> myself and have relationships with people. And also that, after that, that the, he says a line after that. If I'm paraphrasing here, where they they argue, Rosamund Pike says yeah. whatever she responds with, and he like sort of loses temper. Yeah, what are you talking about? And then he says, "Oh, there's there's a there's a there's a bus stop like eight eight hundred and fifty six meters from here. I can be there and on the number X eight bus in in nine point yeah. seven minutes." And you're yeah. like, "Is that impressive? What? What? Yeah. How, what is that?" The line just, of dialogue. Yeah, it just sounds like a that you, smug... That you, well, that, you, yeah. that you plan your public transport journeys well in advance. That's supposed to impress me. Yeah. So, And the problem with the film isn't even that Reacher himself is a bit of an a-hole. Um, I mean, you don't need to like the protagonist um, in a movie. That's not necessary. It, like, it's a myth that you have to like the protagonist because then you wouldn't have films like Scarface or That's Goodfellas. Second. Split second, um, or whatever. But you need you. They're great films, but they have unlikable main characters. But the point the point is that you either need to empathise with that character, um, or the script needs to find a way of um, questioning them and their actions, sort of thing. The problem with Jack Reacher is that you you can't empathise with him because he's obviously an enigma. He's like a drifter, so you you don't. You can't empathize with his situation because he's lived such a unique lifestyle and he's also very emotionally closed down. So there's no empathy going on. So the problem with the film is then that, like you were alluding to earlier, it unquestionably offers Reacher as a hero, like a kind of force of nature here to breeze past the bureaucracy and the protocol and get shit done. And so there's no questioning of his hero status. For example, right, in the film, you'll remember this bit. There's, you know, that there's an awesome car chase, really good car chase, really physical. And he did, and Tom Cruise did it with driving and that, yeah? Mm-hmm. It's, and it's a beautiful, beautiful sequence. At the end of that, the way he gets away is by hopping out while it's moving and letting the car kind of drift into traffic. Um, now, what he does then is he wanders into like a crowd of onlookers wondering what the hell is going on with those police cars and this helicopter. But of course, rather than they see this guy who like looks pretty mean and he's just got out of this car uh, on this massive police chase and walks into this crowd. He walks into this crowd and they simply just help him without questioning him for a second. Yeah, they just crowd around him. Doesn't someone give him his hat yes, as well or something? give him his hat. Like he's one of them. And it's like, what? Why? He's this... It's not like they'd recognize him because he's an outsider. So he's just some guy, a criminal. They're none of them are at all worried about the, the fact that he just stepped out of this vehicle after this massive chase. Which is drifting he, into traffic. Yeah. And it could be and he could be threatening. And I think that kind of points to what you were saying about like um, this, the attitude that's behind the film of this kind of the supposed appeal of Jack Reacher himself. 
and it's the most kind of like solipsistic male fantasy ever in a way it's this fantasy of absolute control but also independent no responsibility sort of no yeah. responsibility but also having absolute control over every situation and in a way it's kind of like a falsehood that's existed in hollywood since day one really the kind of surly aggressive male loner who rides into town kicking ass makes no friends but fixes everything sort of thing and then walks off again you know it's like the man with the no name with those films they never go into they never treat the audience with like the contempt like oh you wish you were him well exactly so, it's got that extra element so the fact that it goes into into that depth and i just spent the whole film watching it and the sequel just thinking i i if we can move past that not everyone wants to have that life if you mm. if like you and i both didn't we watch the film if you don't really if you're not impressed by him or jealous yeah. of him then he just comes across as like pathetic and yes. ir- irritating there are so many lines of dialogue in the film where people just say can you shut up jack like because you're not impressing usually in these films where there is this kind of man with no name walking into town um the script will kind of provide a counterpoint to this idea of the man being a faultless hero. Like it will be like, well, you know, he saved the town, but in the end he's lonely. He's lost someone, whatever. At a real personal cost. Yes. But, and, and like you say, and it especially needs that if the script is going to go out of its way to push his condescending worldview on us, us, the sheep watching it sort of thing then it needs it even more. But it, it goes out of its way to say, oh, well, actually, this is the kind of hero we really need, kind of guy who's not going to follow rules. And wh- why she gets involved with him in the first place, this, like, you know, she's a lawyer, isn't she? So, um, yeah, so that was pretty bad. And it was something you mentioned earlier as well about, like, um, we, we would, which brings us right back to the start. In fact, you talk about like the efficiency of like um, intake and like just taking down people, sort of thing, yeah. taking them out as quickly and efficiently as possible, so they're not a threat. Near the end of Jack Reacher, I know it's not twenty years old, uh, but it's not really too much of a spoiler. But he will, he basically squares off against his one of his main rivals, sort of Who, thing. Don't, but, whose name is Jay Courtney? It is. Uh, he's as amazing as ever um and so he comes up to him and like he successfully manages to like evade him and he's got a gun to his head basically jack reach has a gun to his head so he's like completely got the upper hand he gets the guy to chuck the chuck the gun away and up to this point jack reach has just been doing everything just to stay alive do everything he can just to you know um just to do whatever is needed in the most efficient way possible but of course, in this sequence, he has a gun to his head and he decides to make him turn around and then Jack Reacher tosses his gun away uh, so that they can have like a proper fist fight in the rain. And it's like, so it it doesn't even make sense on a level of his character because why, why would he do that anyway? But on top of that, there's a slightly uncomfortable sense that this, that he almost admires him in a way, that he's his ultimate nemesis. So therefore... Oh, he wouldn't be able to do anything as dishonorable as that. This is the same guy who has just sniped five completely innocent people, by the way. And and yet Jack Reeks is like has some sort of weird admiration for him. It's bizarre. Yeah. Like, there's no reason for him to feel that he's like some sort of equal or like ultimate nemesis. I feel it's... like we should watch the second one as well. Yeah. Um, because you, you're bringing all these feelings back that I'd suppressed. Uh, where I was watching it and and usually I think when I watch because it's effectively at, at, at its core just like a trashy action film and when 
when I watch those films, like from from the days of yore, there's kind of like this kind of weird innocent, or like sort of they're just out of their time now, you know. Yeah. But this is a modern film. Yes. And uh, yeah. yeah, and and a throwback in some ways, I suppose, to those sorts of values in a way. But uh, you know, like we watched not so long ago, we watched To Live and Die in L.A. Yes. Right? Which again is very much a 70s style movie in I would say not say modern clothing, but mid 80s clothing. But it was very much in the same vein as those sorts of movies. And again, you got a, in that film it's very clever in the way that it, it you're kind of seduced by a quite unlikable man. Really, he's quite a womanizing. He's just grotesque, misogynist. He's violent. He doesn't play by the rules. And, he's got unmanageable hair. <laughs> um, and and he's sort of out for revenge and all that kind of thing. So he's got all these like uh, quite repugnant characteristics, but he is also like um, he is also seductive in the way that he kind of persuades through through his partner persuades you that you could get sucked into that life sort of thing. And the way that it it very cleverly like opens that film opens with him doing something extremely like uh, decent and honourable by trying to talk down a terrorist sort of thing. And you think, all right, he's he's a decent guy who's got a brain sort of thing. So you instantly think, right, this is a decent man who there's decency underneath anyway. So, and that's planted in your head for the whole film sort of thing. And you watch his kind of like moral decline throughout the film. But of course in Jack Reacher, there's no, that, that's what I mean about there being no questioning of it. There's, it never ever plays with that, um, that notion of what, the kind of morally gray hero is it's like he is a hero you're meant to admire him you're meant to fall in love with him he's meant to be charming because he just says it like it is yeah he's saying what we're all thinking Mm. he's doing Mm. what we all want to do but yeah that 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 central sequence looking at the office was really problematic because it was just really misjudged and I, I could just imagine, like, I'd love to have seen a camera on, on that scene in the cinema facing the audience with night vision. So you could just see hundreds of furrowed brows for just a <laughs> yeah. split second. Yeah, I remember thinking at the time and just thinking, no, I, I really not. I don't find your lifestyle appealing at all. Anyway. <laughs> I'd much rather be working in that office than where you are now. Yeah. Judging, yeah. judging the distance of bus stops from yourself. Yeah, so that's it. Yeah, yeah. that's all I'd that's say it. about that. Well, I think that was a pretty chock a block first episode of of yeah, this. Really. Yeah. yeah, the men who talk. And what was this? What's the show called? Uh, we haven't actually set it up yet. We're recording this before. It's just the men who talk, <laughs> state of play, and ah, oh, Kino Kingdom. Kino Kingdom. Yeah. Maybe I'll have to look up what the word Kino means. Maybe I, I won't. I, I it's like a sort of pretentious word for film, but I guess it comes from kinetoscope. Um, so yeah that's it i mean have you got any things anyway but yeah if you got i mean i haven't got anything i'm in the middle now of watching motherless brooklyn so i'm going to finish that tonight oh yeah that's um um, edward norton's i don't know if it's his directorial debut but he did direct it didn't he yeah i think i'm about it's quite long it's like two and a half hours i think i'm an hour and a half into it so there's no left um i hate watching films in two halves but i was so tired last night i turned off at like two in the morning um but yeah, so I've got nothing. I might watch Jack Reacher 2 now just because it's fresh <laughs> in my mind and it's irritating me. So I could just watch the, that. The only bit of Jack Reacher 2 I've seen is a clip I saw on Reddit where someone like jumps down from a first floor balcony or something like that uh, and lands. And it's just 
they didn't even bother hiding like the crash mat. He just lands and the crash mat like billows up sort of thing. And it's like that man just jumped on a crash mat like and then ran off. Like, well, if really? that's the level, you're just selling it to me more and more. <laughs> oh, I'm going to want to watch that. Have you got any films lined up that you, you know you're going to watch over the coming week? Uh, I don't think I've got anything particularly lined up. So I'll have to be surprised for next time. I really, I, I, I have ordered a few weird oddities uh, in the post, but I'll some some strange horror films because I thought it's been a while since I've expanded my horror movie collection. So it's a really obscure sh- um, stuff. So yeah, it's <laughs> will... a really obscure total shag. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, and like yeah. So I'll definitely deliver my verdict verdict on them. Um, okay. What we'll do then. Um... What we'll do is if we start again, I'll start recording and then we'll go through that again without beating the test run. So that could be good. Okay. <laughs> right, here we go then. So split second. <laughs> <laughs> cool. That's it. Unless you've got anything else you want to get off your chest. Oh, and of course we have another, um, we have another action movie day this week, don't we? So yes, on Thursday. So uh, it's your turn to choose. You haven't actually told us what it is yet. Have you? It's, are you going to um, say the secret? I, I did have a look. I was thinking, well, what can it be? I was, I was thinking, well, I, I noticed that on Prime, they do have Dead End Drive-In, which is a very good uh, 80s kind of like apocalyptic horror action thing. But I think it's too good to be watching one of these nights. Uh, <laughs> so we need something. Basically, we need something to see Thomas Howell. I think I think we got it. Yeah, there's a, there's a few on there. I my to be honest, because I logged in first on the last action movie night last Thursday, I was just when I put up split second, I was just scrolling through like the suggestions. Like, if you like that, you'll love these, and some of them were <laughs> startling. <laughs> so, there was I, half I, a second. There was three quarters of a second. <laughs> It was really? give me two seconds. Um, <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'll love you and leave you then. And, uh, yeah, that's the first episode of Kino Kingdom. It went pretty well, I think. Lovely stuff. Okay. Till the okay. next time. Love you. Bye. Bye for now. <laughs>